Welcome back to the What's Your More podcast. Today, I'm joined with my standing co-host, Mr. Daniel Halverson, for episode 56. Thanks for joining me today, Daniel. You know it, man. Yeah, man. So uh, we're going to briefly do a recap, if you would, of the last real five or six episodes, but it's in our it's in your May lending update that we're doing uh, here for 2023. And I tell you, there's a lot of good stuff in here. And you know, if you haven't got a chance to catch these last episodes, we're kind of going to give them to you here in a little bit of brief, but there's one thing at the end we're going to do a deep dive on that's not in those episodes, but you know, there's a lot to cover here in the month of May. Yeah, I think the challenge for me is that you've gotten so fast with recording uh, need-to-know information as it comes out that now I'm just like the summary recap 30 days later of all the things that happened. So, well, you know, these these media uh, <laughs> these media teams tell us you have to record it right when it happens and then get it out there. So we're trying to push it out as fast as possible, which is kind of cramping your style on the lending updates. So it. I apologize That's for that. It, man. I'm going to have to put a different perspective in here <laughs> so we don't cover the same things all over there again. There you go. There you go. So let's get started here. We've got uh, we've got LLPAs to talk about. We've got home prices uh, as far as all the the mixed drama the news wants you to believe in what's happening. We've got interest rates. We've got 40-year mortgages. So let's just get started with home prices, what people care about, like what's going on with the home prices. Yeah, it turns out um, we weren't super far off base with uh, what we've been talking about for a while, which is nice. But... <laughs> Um, but basically pulled the, the core logic data for um, what's available here through uh, through March, which mm-hmm. came out a week or two ago. Uh, and this is this is nationwide data here, but the, the core logic report essentially stated that in February home prices increased by 0.8 percent nationally. Uh, March, they were expected to go up by 0.2%, uh, and the actual data came out showing a 1.6% increase in home prices on the month. And this is month over month. This is month over month. Okay. So for reference, at 1.6% month over month, that increase was twice the average seen between 2015 and 2020. So before pre-pandemic levels, this would be double. Correct. So this is a pretty monster move in home prices. Not bad. So for our audience, can you explain CoreLogic? Not everybody's in the mortgage business or in the real estate business. Who is CoreLogic? Like, what does that even mean? So CoreLogic is basically a a very large data company. Mm -hmm. They provide a lot of resources to lenders, uh, mortgage companies, um, as as far as processing loans, but they also collect and store a ton of data. A ton. So they are probably one of two or three resources that really would be a good um, sample of what's going on with home prices. Yeah, for so, perspective, they bought they bought Ellie May, so they now own all the information through Ellie May's center, uh, which is the largest LOS system in the United States, the loan yeah. operating system. So they have what that's where their data comes from. So you know they're getting ninety percent of the origination information pumped through them at a rapid rate. Yep. So they've got you know the Case Shiller Index is another home price related metric data mm-hmm. source. CoreLogic is right up there with them. Right. So this is very trusted, a very trusted source of information. Yeah, and it's, and it's a nas- at a national level here. So basically, CoreLogic is now forecasting a 4.6% increase in home prices over the next 12 months. Not bad. Uh, which is greater than the national average, you know, uh, certainly not what 2020 and 2021 were, but, you know, you tell somebody they're going to buy a house and it's going to go up by 4.6% every year probably a pretty easy decision. Um, but the, like I said, the, the data is national. So what we're not even accounting for here <clears throat> is that Florida uh, saw the highest increases nationwide on a year-over-year basis. So this isn't even Florida-centric, but Florida's home prices, as you could imagine, appreciated more than that because if they're the highest number and this is a national average, then Florida's home prices went up by more than that. You yep. could you could uh, make that conclusion. Right. So um, I, I just think it's interesting to note because we're still getting, uh, in, in the mortgage world, we're still getting a lot of questions about how's the market. And you still have 
some buyers that are waiting the market out to see what happens and waiting on something to happen with prices or rates. I know the real estate agents that listen to this and that we work with feel the same thing. Um, while you're starting to see, I think, more people understanding that home prices aren't going down, mm-hmm. uh, that are reasonably in tune with what's going on, uh, it's still a question that you're getting a lot. And it really just goes back to the, the notion that, hey, listen, supply, demand, right? There's not enough supply of homes. There's a lot of demand for homes. Um, home prices are poised to continue to go up as long as that trend continues. Yeah. So, and I mean, you've been saying it for quite some time now that if you're sitting by waiting for rates to go down, you're probably going to let the price point pass you by. This is a perfect example and a testament to that. These price points are continuing to go up and we're seeing a tremendous amount of just buyers settling into the rate system right now. They're going, you know what? We thought the rates would come down. They haven't really come down. You know, we were anticipating it, but we need to go ahead and lock in the price now because the one thing that's not going down are the price points. Well, and back to the the same thing we've talked about before, you know, a a large portion of people can afford these higher payments at these higher rates. Mm -hmm. Maybe not everybody. That's that's obviously fair to say. Fair to say. But there are people that can afford it. Their wages have gone up. Maybe the wages haven't gone up in conjunction to account for how much rates have gone up. But there are people that can afford it. Those people still want to buy homes. Supply is very much constricted, and some of that's building inventory, right? Some of that is people don't want to move because they've got low interest rates. But as long as inventory remains tight, you probably could expect this to continue. But goes back to the point you just alluded to. If you've got somebody on the fence, now you can point to this data. You don't have to say, well, last year, home prices went up by X amount and have the rebuttal of, well, what happened when interest rates went up? Well, now interest rates are, have, have gone up since that time and home prices consecutive months gone up by a pretty, pretty sizable clip. So. Right. And what's the average you know, age of a first-time home buyer, Daniel? 33, 34. So 33, 34. We go back 33 years. That puts us at 1990. What do we know about 1990 right now and 91 and 92 that we've been kind of screaming for the last three years, you know, thanks to our friends and part over at MBS Highway. What, what have we been screaming for the last three years? High, high birth rates, higher birth rates than we, we've seen in decades before that. Yeah. I mean, this is the peak of the millennial birth rate. So it's not too far-fetched to think that if you're a birth rate of 1990 or 91, you're getting ready to become a first-time homebuyer. You know, and you now are entering the buyer's market on top of the current pool of buyers that are there that just adds more constraints to the inventory nationwide. Fuel to the fire. Yeah, fuel to the fire. So, you know, you talk about like waiting or something to happen or affordability. Tell us about this 40-year mortgage situation that's going out there. Is it adding more affordability? 40-year mortgages, all of our problems are solved, right? (laughs) Uh, We won't spend a whole lot of time on this. I know you've covered it before. It's it's something that uh, the news kind of tossed it out there. Same thing happened last year Mm -hmm. when when this, this bill was proposed. But essentially, yes, FHA changed some guidelines to allow to a forty-year mor- to allow for forty-year mortgages. No, that does not apply to newly originated loans. But <laughs> yeah, there's always there's always a but, right? Too good yeah. to be true. So if you see the headlines, FHA allowing for forty-year mortgages, understand that that is for loan modifications. And just for those of you that aren't aware, a loan modification is an ex- an existing homeowner with an existing mortgage. Okay. Generally speaking, if there's any type of financial hardship involved, uh, that's what would prompt a modification. So if someone's having trouble making their payments, mm-hmm. they reach out to their servicer, they ask for some type of relief, right? And, um, you know, the servicer obviously doesn't want to foreclose. There are costs associated with that. Servicers would prefer that people stay in their homes and continue to pay their mortgage. Mm-hmm. Now FHA is allowing them to essentially um, increase the term to 480 months to in turn reduce the payment to allow for those people to continue to remain in their homes. 
And that's something that has already been an option from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac on the conventional loan side. Okay. FHA is now just allowing for that as well. And does the homeowner have to have some sort of like financial constraint or can they just be everything good and just say, hey, I just want to go to 40 months or 40 I, years? I can't speak to, to every situation, but I would say that financial hardship is a prerequisite. And in fact, sure. when we when we saw a lot of people asking for modifications years ago, mm-hmm. the prerequisite was that oftentimes they had to be 90 days behind on their payments. Yep. So the the in in those cases the servicer would not even consider a modification until they were already late on their payments. Now whether that's changed, maybe, maybe there are exceptions to that. You know that's going to be servicer specific. I don't want to speak out of turn, but it, it, the the expectation is that there is a a documentable mm-hmm. financial hardship right to to make that request. You can't just call your servicer and say, "Hey, lower my mortgage payment," because that would be poor uh, poor decision by yeah. the servicers to then directly impact the amount of servicing income that they're going to receive on those loans. So to wrap that up, I got to have a current FHA loan. I got to have some sort of financial constraints. And if I have that, I can make the request. Doesn't guarantee I'm going to get it, but at least I have the option. But I have to have a current FHA loan right now. I can't get a new one and expect to have affordability on a new purchase. That is correct. Now, now if you're a lender or you're a real estate agent, this is still good news because (laughs) if you've got a customer that's having trouble making their payments, this is something that can allow them to stay in their home. Sure. Maybe allow them to, to be able to set something up without significant credit ramifications. Mm-hmm. So it's still a good thing. Just understand that this is not something that's going to be open to people that want to purchase a home today yeah. moving forward. And speaking of calls, you know, I met with a uh, – I actually bumped into someone at this real estate summit I was at this week. And uh, the gentleman came to me and said, hey, I heard your episode about the – trigger leads. And he's like, dude, I've got 191 calls as of today. And I applied three days ago. I thought he was joking. Like, you know, you hear like, is people expand? I go, really do 191? He goes, look, look at my phone. And I'm like, holy cow, I couldn't believe it. So hold the phones. Tell me what's going on here in the, in this trigger lead world. You know, it's, it's funny. Trigger leads weren't even something that we talked about for four or five, six years. Um, at all. We had talked about them, you know, 2012, 2013, mm-hmm. they, were, they were around. Right. And, and we really didn't know that they had made a comeback until <laughs> all of a sudden, you know, clients are complaining at a high level. I'm getting tons and tons of calls, you know. And yeah. The first few times you hear it, you brush it off, you know, and then clients start telling you, I've gotten 70 calls, I've gotten 80 calls, I've gotten 100 calls. And they kind of think you did it. Well, they, they always think that, yeah. that the lender they applied with is the reason, you know, because why would they have any reason to think that the, the credit repositories were selling their data? Correct. Which is what's happening. But think about it from an individual lender's point of view. Why would I want to sell your data to competition to have them solicit you for something that I'm, I'm hoping- <laughs> Please make my job harder. To, to do myself, right? <laughs> yeah. So I don't want someone else to do, to do your loan if you apply for <laughs> a loan. This is to too me. easy. I want to make it harder. <laughs> that's right. Give me 10 competitors. Uh, that's right. I'd like to, I'd like to get into a, a, a knife fight over, over costs <laughs> loans. Uh, but, and I know you had a whole episode on this, but just to paraphrase here, yeah, there has been a, a proposed bill. Nothing has been passed yet, but there's been a Correct. proposed bill uh, to essentially cut off trigger leads. So what happens with trigger leads is essentially when you apply for a loan, the credit bureaus sell that data to third parties. So it's not just mortgage companies that buy them, although that's probably the, the primary. Yep. Um, buyer of trigger leads, you could also could do the same thing for auto insurance. Yeah, they sell them to data centers. That's where they're selling them. Correct. So if you apply for a mortgage, uh, ABC Mortgage Company can purchase the information, and all they know is that you, your name, probably your phone number, maybe your email, and that you've applied for a mortgage. So they have no context other than you're probably in the market for a mortgage. Um, and then, of course, 
it's a it's a very cheap lead as you can imagine because the conversion on those is very low. Right. After the probably the fourth or fifth call, nobody's probably answering their phone for a couple of weeks until they stop getting calls about this. Right. Much less 191 calls. That's correct. Right. That is correct. So this you know, poor guy. So so basically, you know, the way that this is going to work is um, part of the Fair Credit Reporting Act. But um, basically, if you apply for a loan, that data can't be sold anymore. So. Um, there are things that you could do right now, though, that I think that even, even though this is a proposed bill, like I said, mm-hmm. nothing has been passed. But I think that as a consumer, it's important to note that you can opt out from these phone calls. Sure. And, um, you know, our, our loan officers at Bank of England or any other um, reputable mortgage company out there or even some of your real estate agents may know this, but there's a website you can go to basically opt out from solicitations like this, essentially put yourself on what you may have, for, you may have heard of as the do not call list. Mm-hmm. So you're on the do not call list, which means you can't receive solicitations like that. The caveat is if you want to apply for a mortgage, you have to opt out before you apply for the mortgage. Correct. Because once you've applied, they've got the data. Nobody can retroactively go back and say, don't call these people anymore. That's correct. Uh, so it would be something you'd have to do before you apply for a mortgage. Yeah, and it's two different things, right? One's opt out. So there's a separate site. We'll put that in the comments here for you. You can check that out on our YouTube show notes at the very bottom there. There'll be a link and just make sure you subscribe. There'll be one for the opt out and then there's one for the do not call registry. Two separate sites, yep. two separate processes. Just keep in mind, if you do the opt out, you're opting yourself out of everything, not just mortgages. So that means any type of credit card offer, any type of promotions that come from a, a, a well-qualified, what they called triggered lead, you're going to be opted out of. So just make sure you read that fine print and understand if you don't want anybody sending you mail pieces and, and soliciting, that's the perfect site. But if it's just about mortgages, I would recommend the do not call. And, and you can kind of, you know, slay that dragon from calling you at that point with that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that they're on the right path with with this bill, you know, and I don't just happen. say that because we're, you know, Bank of England's not a purchaser of trigger leads. Right. Uh, at least our branch specifically. I'm not saying that because we don't engage in it. I'm saying it because, you know, anytime somebody is being solicited for something that they didn't expressly apply for with that company, um, you know, I, I think it's, Moen's maybe, maybe go so far as saying a shady business practice, but it's probably, it's it's an unwarranted Solicitation. Daniel's call what it is. It's harassment and it's deceptive practice. Okay. <laughs> the reality is if someone calls someone. I thought we had to be PC in here. No. If someone calls someone out of the blue, unsolicited, and pretends to be part of the lending process, that's deceptive. And and and, and heaven forbid, 191 calls in this gentleman's stance, that's harassment. Yep. And, and they're all different too. Not even the same institution. It's unbelievable. But let, let's back up for a second. You mentioned we haven't talked about this in four to five years, and now it's out of the blue and we're talking about it. Do you want to speak to maybe why that's happening? I mean, uh, do you want to speak to the desperation in our industry maybe that has set in during these tougher times, whereas people are trying to maybe get cheaper leads and trying to find a way to to maintain a level of business at a cheaper cost? That's really what's happening here, isn't it? Well, that's exactly what it is. So if you look at, let's just say, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 mm-hmm. First half of 22 anyway, you know, if you're a call center type environment, you're probably investing those marketing dollars in refinancing customers. Of course. So whether yep. you're a servicer or not, if you're a servicer, you're trying to, to flip people into streamline refinances. You're, you're spending your marketing dollars to go procure those, those leads and can get them to refinance. What you're saying is take the current book of business that you have and turn, turn it, it over. over. Yep. Okay. Right. Keep flipping it to lower interest but rates. But if you're a call center that doesn't have a book of business, this is what you're speaking to, right? Yeah. And you still would see a lot of direct mail 
campaigns, directed mm-hmm. campaigns, trying to get refinances. Now, if you're a large servicer, you can just go through your, your existing database of Correct. loans you've purchased and yep. do that. But even companies that didn't, you know, trigger leads weren't necessarily something that you needed because there's other ways you could invest your marketing dollars. Well, and rates were low, everyone was calling in, right? Exactly correct. And, you know, and and then you move to an environment where rates go up quickly. Mm -hmm. So refinances aren't really an option. Uh, You got all this sales force of people where you're doing record volumes, those get cut in half, let's call it. Yep. And, um, you know, a lot of times companies are slow to to make staff reductions, which for good reason, right? We don't want to see people lose their jobs. But what they try to do is they go try to get more creative ways to get leads. And when, when the volume constricts in the market, there's not as many people refinancing. Refinances were at one point down 80-something percent year over year. Mm-hmm. Purchase loans were down, you know, 50, 60 percent year over year. So you don't even necessarily can't just shift your focus to, to uh, marketing for purchase, purchase. loans. Yeah, exactly. So now you have to get really creative and say, well, what's left? You know, and what's left is, well, we know these people applied for a loan. Let's just give it a shot, right? What's left is we are going to be leeches. (laughs) That's right. We're going to suck the life out of these loan applications where they apply elsewhere. That's right. I mean, the options became very limited at that point. Yeah. Well, and I mean, you said this too, pennies on the dollar. From an affordable marketing standpoint, I mean, that's the only thing that holds true here that I get. I get that, right? I just don't like the way they go about it. Not because I think I got to compete against them as a loan originator. I've never really cared for them. What I don't like is the fact that it confuses the customer. And the whole reason these are even put into place was because there was this ideology behind the three repositories in a data center they created that maybe when Charlie applies with you, Daniel, when our producer Charlie applies with you, that maybe Charlie is unaware of these other competitors that might could give him a better deal. But the ideology behind that's the most crazy thing I've ever heard because as if, you know, the system's set up to screw the customer over that they need this other this other party to call them they don't know exists is the craziest darn thing because the reality is the people that are calling, there's more complaints on the trigger dialing portion of this, these dialer leads as they call them. There's more, there's more CFPB complaints on that, FDIC complaints on that, state regulatory complaints on that. Because ultimately, they're stepping into a process and they're creating a deceptive distraction to get the customer engaged, and it usually doesn't end well. Well, and it, it does two other things. One, it it, it sours the rapport that, that the lender that um, the customer directly applied through the sours that relationship, yep. right? Yeah. The other thing is it kind of sours their their overall experience of wanting to buy a home, yeah. you know? Uh, you start getting bombarded with phone calls, and then maybe you start thinking to yourself, well, maybe this isn't something I want to do right now. Yep. I got it coming at me from every angle. Maybe maybe I'll just pause and change course, or maybe I'll wait a little while. So it 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 deters the customer from doing something that they uh, that they decided that they want to do. Yep. Um, so so can, can we ask this question? Why so long for a bill to be proposed? Uh, maybe it's been a while since anybody in Congress applied for a mortgage. <laughs> that's, I, I, that's exactly <laughs> what happened. Someone in Congress got got triggered so, and got 191 calls. Gentleman, yes, while gentleman in that session. proposed the bill. It was like, damn this! We've got to get a bill to stop all this. Maybe <laughs> that's we exactly could get him, what happened. Maybe we could get him on the podcast. That, get his experience. That's exactly. Well, hey, you know what? If you're listening to this, call your congressman and tell him to vote HR 2656 because it is is in proposal and goes into session in June. So tell him to vote that. Yo, thank you so much for choosing us today. We're definitely not done with our podcast, but we are going to take a really short sponsor break and then we'll get right back to the show. I've been in the lending business for 20 years. I've seen many different lenders. During those 20 years, I recognized there's a difference between being an originator and an advisor. And the team at Bank of England is full of advisors. 
They take their time to understand your needs. They take the time to structure a mortgage for you and your family. And I cannot recommend them enough. If you're in the market to purchase a home, maybe it's a second home, maybe it's an investment property, or you're looking to refinance your current property that you live in, take a minute to work with the advisors at Bank of England Mortgage. They're a nationwide lender, and you can find your local branch at boemortgage.com, www.boemortgage.com, because it's more than loans, it's people. Thanks so much for letting us give a shout out to our sponsor. All right, now back to the podcast. Talk to me this rate update with a twist. Can't wait to hear this headline. With a twist, man. With a twist. So, uh, you know, obviously the rate update has been heavily geared towards um, inflation. You know, what's happening with inflation? What's happening with interest rates? And um, basically, we'll we'll touch on that and then we'll we'll jump into a little bit of the loan level pricing adjustments, also known as LLPAs. Yep. Um, The twist. We'll talk about the twist, right? (laughs) So, uh, but but we always put this in here for context, especially for our partners to to get a little bit of an indication Mm -hmm. of what's going on with interest rates. Sure. You know, the month of of April as a whole, interest rates ticked up a little bit, about an eighth of a point. Uh, So they were up slightly. Um, We got what I would consider to be largely positive inflation data. Mm -hmm. So that would, based on our our previous conversations, that would probably lead people to expect, well, interest rates should have gotten better, right? But the reality is, you know, in March, so April's data for March, uh, we're already in May, so maybe I got to get a little bit faster on my uh, my lending updates, but... Well, we don't get May CPI until Wednesday, so you, you got that going for Correct, you. correct. So, so, so in April, March's data came out, and the overall CPI inflation uh, increased by 0.1%. Mm-hmm. Uh, which brought the year to year year over year reading down from six percent to five percent. So a full so a full percent reduction in inflation. Right. And typically, when we see that, we should see rates come you, down. You would think big market rally, right? We right. just knocked uh, we just knocked the inflation down by a full percent. We'll be there. We'll be there in no time. That's right? the overall reading. So hit them with the twist. Well, you know what wasn't helpful for interest rates is core CPI, which we've talked about uh, quite a bit, but it strips out food and energy costs. So food and energy costs. The Fed say, hey. This is volatile. It's not within our control. Um, so we want to look at see, we want to look at inflation, removing those items because we feel like that gives us a better handle on how our policy is is affecting inflation. Mm-hmm. So core CPI increased from five and a half to five point six percent, and that would probably tell you that either food or energy costs went up, right? Mm-hmm. Well, in the month of April, we know that there were some issues with the um, strategic petroleum reserve. You know, they were supposed to replenish that. They didn't, um, and it just shows you the variability when you start talking about energy costs. You're very captive to what's happening with oil production, right? Correct. And if we don't produce enough of it, then we're captive to to what globally what's happening with oil. We're captive to what other countries want to charge us for it. Exactly correct. Which is exactly what happened in April. That's where there's a problem. Yep. So not to get too far politically in the weeds, but but essentially core CPI went up, right? Mm-hmm. So it went up slightly, and that's not necessarily something that that would be what we would want to see. What the feds want to see, it's going to impact their policy decision-making in the, in the future because they're saying, okay, well, the things that we can, we feel like we can control, mm-hmm. we're not necessarily controlling to the extent that we want. By looking at that core, that's what they're saying. That is correct, yep. yes. So does that mean long-term that we're changing our stance? No, inflation, we still feel is coming down. Like I mentioned in a previous episode, though, you know, we came from 9.1 to 5 very quickly. The move from five to two, 
going to take a lot longer, right? Yep. That doesn't mean that interest rates can't come down and we won't see some victories, but we're not going to see that kind of progress as we get closer to the 2% target. Correct. So, um, so that in a nutshell, what happened with interest rates, we'll see what happens. We're recording Monday. We'll see what happens Wednesday uh, as it pertains to the CPI. And, you know, maybe we'll see if we can get some improvement there and Hopefully that can maybe help yep. help rights here. Right. What we do know is the Federal Reserve met. They did increase it another quarter. So we're between five and five and a quarter. That's a 500 basis point hike in just over 12 months. We do know that they're continuing to pump more medicine, just like we said they would, into this you know sim- symptom that happened 12 months ago, if you may. Mm-hmm. And we do know that there are a lot of beliefs that are about to back up and hit the pause button and say, okay, let's see what let's see what happens, which would deem some sort of pivot. And we also know this, and I'm just going to pull a quick graph up we were looking at before the show. The Federal Reserve will tighten as much as they can until a financial crisis steps in and says, hey, no more tightening. And since 19, really 57, all the way to current, every time they get to the peak, there's a financial crisis that happens. Now, when I say that, it doesn't mean like the world's coming to an end. It means something has broken. I think from the very beginning when we started this podcast seven months ago, you and Alex Stewart from the Market Distillery and myself, we said we had a debate and we said the Federal Reserve will go until they break something, right? And then we talked about the three things they would break. And one of those three things was the financial system in the United States. And we've had three banks collapse already. And we've got a fourth one that's really kind of hanging on by a thread and a fifth one that's trying to sell. And they're all regional banks. And the regional banks themselves are suffering from some of this policy increase. And raising it a quarter like they just did really isn't helping those regional banks, right? So here we are with three major bank collapse, which as you identified at one point, those three together are bigger than number five through 25. So we do have that brewing, which kind of bodes, maybe they are going to back up and punt here. And maybe we will see some easing because the only medicine the Federal Reserve has to offer, excuse me, the only counter to this medicine they have to offer is to lower rates. I mean, the Federal Reserve, that's the only empowerment they have, raise rates, lower rates. That's yep. all they've got. Absolutely. So, you know, we used to say, well, how much more could they lower it until they got to zero? Well, they got 500 basis points to go. So um, there's also a theology that as that starts to happen, you're going to get this windfall, this downward pressure to these rates that we've been describing for some time. So um, that that looks like it's on the horizon. The CPI will kind of be the tell-all this this Wednesday as we kind of lead into that, and then PCE later. Well, we could go CPI, and then we go PPI, which is the producer price index on Friday, yep. and then we turn the page over to PCE. Those three readings are going to be very critical, and there's mixed – there's mixed reviews on what's going to happen on Wednesday. Right Absolutely, now. Yep. mixed reviews because why they keep moving the goalposts, and you know they keep they keep moving the metrics, and they keep you know even with the job reports they move the metrics. It's very interesting to see what they're doing and how they they being the BLS in this case, and they being how they compile the readings of the CPI. All of this is being skewed, if you may. It's kind of it's kind of unpredictable at this point. Yeah. Cool. So. We, we just don't know. But what we do know is that the government agency of FHFA, the financial housing, or excuse me, the Federal Housing Finance Authority, they came out with some loan level price adjustments per Sandra Thompson. And uh, boy, did she get a lot of people fired up. And then so did the news. And uh, we tried to do an episode to kind of relay the do's and the don'ts and what's really going to happen and who's winning, who's losing, and what's the reality. And, and I'll let you kind of take it from here. I'm still being asked about this. I'm still having people upset. Yeah, no, well, it's the number one thing that's happened in the mortgage industry in quite some time that has people asking a lot of questions. 
from the way that it's been framed up. You, you think asking questions or, or, or pissed off? Well, you know, asking questions in okay. a very unhappy state of mind. <laughs> that's the um, definition of pissed off. That's right. So uh, the, that's the, the PC, we're a PC <laughs> podcast. Okay. Uh, but, uh, but, and I know you talked about this, went into a little bit of a deep dive. You know, what I wanted to do is just kind of give a little bit of backstory about Fannie Mae, LLPAs, you know, and I think that a little bit of context is important here. So Fannie Mae was founded in 1938. Okay. When Fannie Mae was founded, they essentially were, uh, the the whole goal was to create affordable housing. That's like their slogan. Correct. So I'll, let me read you the, the mission statement says, Fannie Mae's mission is to facilitate equitable and sustainable access to homeownership and quality, affordable renting ho- rental housing across America. That's the first sentence of their mission statement. So, so the company is in existence to promote affordable housing. Correct. And- 2008, they moved to government conservatorship. Meaning the government took them over because they were collapsing. That is correct. So the government essentially, you know, doesn't own them. They're a government-sponsored entity. Um, And that's 2008 is when LLPA's loan-level pricing adjustments became a thing. Well, the government doesn't own them. They're monitored by a government authority now. Correct. Which is the FHFA. Correct. So... So 2008, loan-level pricing adjustments came out. And Mm -hmm. and essentially what a loan-level pricing adjustment is, basically there are certain variables um, with respect to a borrower's qualification that will either improve their interest rate or make their interest rate worse. And to your point, there's been these out there since 2008. Yes, they've been there for a while. And for instance, how much money you put down, that that could trigger a loan-level pricing adjustment. Mm -hmm. So more or less, there's not necessarily a if this, then definitely this. But depending on how much money you put down, there's a loan-level pricing adjustment. Depending on your credit score tier, there's a loan-level pricing adjustment. And these don't get talked about because they're the same across all lenders, right? And when you get quoted an interest rate, that's already in there. It's always been there since 2008. Correct. So you yeah. would have no, you'd have no way of knowing that you're subject to a loan-level pricing adjustment. In all the news stories I've read, and I've read a lot, not one of them has led with that statement that these have always been in place. Yep. Maybe not the one we're about to talk about, but loan level price adjustments have always been in place since 2008. Yeah. So, okay. so interesting. You know, just a, a quick couple of quick little tidbits here. So, obviously, 2020 interest rates hit low, low lows, right? Mm-hmm. 2021 rates are low, low, low. Well, January of 2022, Fannie Mae came out and said, we're announcing loan level price adjustments for second homes and high balance loans. Uh, and they created a significant change to the interest rates offered on second homes. Were investment properties included in that? Investment properties were also included in that. So they came out and said interest rates getting, you know, 125 basis points to 375 basis points worse overnight. So that doesn't mean it's in the rate. That means it's in the pricing. And that is, that's a hard thing to describe. That is correct. So it's in the pricing. But essentially when that happened, interest rates on second homes and investment properties went up overnight and not just by a quarter percent. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about interest rates going up by half percent, full percent, depending on certain variables. Overnight. So let's talk about why, why Fannie Mae would have done that, right? Mm-hmm. And Freddie Mac's included in that too. But why would, they, why would they have done that? Well, if Fannie Mae's mission is to promote affordable housing, well, now they looked at their portfolio and said, we've somehow become the primary lending source for people to buy second homes and investment properties. Does not really support the mission of why Fannie Mae was created, right? Not at so all. Generally, someone buying a second home is not your target for affordable housing. Yeah. 
So that's kind of their logic of why they did that, right? And then you move into um, the end of 2022, they added another loan level pricing adjustment to cash out refinances. Mm -hmm. So now cash out refinances, even on primary residences, become considerably more expensive. Yep. So Fannie Mae, once again, you take it back to their mission, promoting affordable housing, right? So where does people cashing out their equity and creating higher loan to values and more risk, where does that fit into that, right? So it typically doesn't. And I'm not saying right, wrong, or indifferent. I'm just saying if you look at the context of why they would have made these changes, that's those are some recent changes. And then you've got these changes that have come out um, effective May 1, which mm-hmm. do inf- impact primary residences. But I think that it's important to note that, um, you know, basically a couple things. Sandra uh, Thompson, Thompson over at the FHFA mm-hmm. released a statement, basically said, hey, listen. And I liked her statement, by the way. She brought it out about 48, 72 hours after all heck broke loose in the media. Yeah, so she did. So she she basically said, hey, listen, when, when you look at the new loan level pricing adjustments, the thing you have to keep in mind is that the previous pricing framework wasn't 100% accurate, wasn't perfectly calibrated to risk, was her exact words. Mm-hmm. So she's saying, hey, a lot, of, a lot of these changes that we made were solely from a, a risk standpoint, realizing that some of what we had been doing could be improved on. And, and, and essentially, Fannie Mae doesn't want to lose money, right? They have to they have to find a way to be profitable, which when you make rates higher on cash out refis, you make rates higher on investment properties, second homes, essentially that's allowing you to be profitable. Mm-hmm. It's also serving your mission of being able to pass that cost down to allow for affordable housing. So when you look at some of these changes, yes, some of these changes are are built with the understanding that they're trying to put, put people into homes uh, and create more affordable housing, right? Mm-hmm. Create more opportunity for people to own a home. Um, and some of that negatively impacted higher credit scores, right? Yeah, naturally. That's that's where the news is getting this. They took some of the changes and said, well, the overarching theme here is that people with higher credit scores are suffering. People with lower credit scores are benefiting, which is not necessarily the case. So we get into the, the current changes, and, and if that bored you, then hopefully you didn't tune out. Uh, <laughs> but come back with me here. So, you know, essentially the things that are important to note here is this is just conventional loans. So there are FHA loans, there are VA loans, there are USDA loans, there are portfolio loans, there are jumbo loans. All of those different types of loans were not impacted by this. So this is conventional loans only. Second thing to keep in mind is that there are some scenarios where people with higher credit scores get better interest rates now. So uh, Than they the, did before. Than they did before, yes. Yeah, I think that's real important getting missed a lot here. There are situations where people with lower credit scores, the pricing is worse in some scenarios. So... To say that the entire theme was taking money from higher credit score people and giving it to lower credit score people, there's there's not necessarily, that's not an entirely accurate statement. Can we go to the one scenario that I've seen on the news every single, on a $400,000 loan, this means a higher credit score borrower is being charged $14,400 more, which equates to a $40 extra additional payment per month. Yeah, so so let's talk about what's happening there. So the, So basically... What the news is taking is they're taking the loan level pricing adjustment, mm-hmm. what that would do to the pricing on the on the rates, not the interest rate, but that would do to the pricing. Mm-hmm. And they're making an assumption that that the client would elect instead to pay a higher interest rate to absorb that that cost of that loan level pricing adjustment. They're extrapolating it over 30 years. Correct. And then they're dividing that by 360 months to get to a monthly cost. That's correct. So the reality is if you look at that, Yes, in that scenario, that higher credit score bar is paying more. But but let's look at two things. One, are you going to keep that loan for 30 years? There you go. Probably not. 
So let's take $14,000 off the table right now because even if you stand that on for 10, we got to cut that by a third, right? The other thing though is the cost of, of keeping the interest rate where it would have been before these changes on a $400,000 loan, maybe that's $1,500. Maybe. So I could pay $1,500 one time in a point cost and keep the rate that I would have had before, which, and I realize if you're listening to this, you're probably saying, yeah, but that's still $1,500 more. Yes, but it's not fifty. It's not fifteen thousand. It's not fourteen thousand. Well, and let's all the way. Let's. <laughs> that's one credit score, one down payment. Let's keep that credit score the same, and let's get to that sweet spot that you're describing. And guess what? You're saving a ton of money that wasn't there before. They're not mentioning that in the article. Correct. They're Correct. assuming in the article that a great credit score is only going to put the minimum down payment down versus a credit score that's not as good putting the minimum down payment down and the offset in which that would the differential is, they're also assuming that you would pay a loan level price adjustment in the form of discount. No one's going to pay that in the form of discount. They never have since 2008. Correct. It's always priced into the rate. When the rate is delivered to the street, that is already in there. There's not even an option for someone to go, hey, let me let me give you with and without LPA. I mean, you can get creative and figure it out on your own, but there's no there's no option for that. So the, for them to report it like that, they're reporting not only an unlikely scenario, a scenario that doesn't even present itself right now. Correct. And, and as a consumer, you could be quoted two different rates and you would, would not be able to extrapolate from that what the cost of the loan level price Correct. adjustment would be. Wouldn't and, be. It wouldn't be possible for you to do that. And that's why it's frustrating because the news anchor or the news journalist that's reporting this, they're not in mortgages. That'd be like me reporting on a particular tool for a cardiothoracic surgeon and, and why one's better than the other and what it's going to mean when they cut you open. I, I could, I don't know. And I wouldn't even attempt to try to explain that, but boy, do they go right in on this and yeah, they get everyone fired up. I don't even know that I would have gone after saying the word cardiothoracic. So Yeah, there you go. Yeah, uh, pulled that one out of thin air. But, I actually had it written down. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about two other points here to consider with these loan level pricing adjustments. Mm -hmm. One is, I think there's already 28 different Congress people that are opposing this change. You're right. There's two There's two House representatives that already proposed it with significant backing Correct. Right so, so the reality is these LLPAs, they change from time to time. Mm -hmm. So this may not be a permanent change, right? So let's not say that in perpetuity, this will always be the case. Mm -hmm. That's one point. The other point is, uh, and why I think that, that these LLPAs potentially could change, mm -hmm. when you start talking about some of the the credit score tiers that particularly benefit um, in a disproportionate way from these changes. Mm -hmm. The reality is that those loans still may not score on a risk basis well enough to even do conventional loans. So the reality is a lot of the people that quote unquote benefit from this probably would, would be better served for a different loan product, such as an FHA loan, as opposed to a conventional loan. So, if Fannie Mae announces these changes and they're not seeing the volume of loans increase and the credit scores that they're trying to improve, there's really no benefit to doing that, which if you're somebody with a higher credit score, that would, my logic behind that is saying, well, if they're looking at this and saying these LLPAs are not necessarily getting us closer to our mission, well, that's a situation where you might see those LLPAs change as well. Yeah. So, you know, the reality is to kind of recap here, there are some scenarios where higher credit score borrowers are now going to be paying more. Um, but once again, according to Sandra Thompson, some of these changes needed to happen anyway based on risk. So just because someone's got a higher credit score does not necessarily mean they're, they're, they're you know, financially well off. Right. You know? but, but the counter to that, Daniel, is how is, how is that borrower 
at more risk than the borrower with a 638 versus the 783. So, I mean, when she said there had to be risk adjustments, but yet the I like how she came out, but she's talking out of both sides of her mouth because you can't say that 783 borrower statistically is going to be needs more risk put on them than what they were having, and yet you lower the risk profile to 638. That's what she did to bridge the gap. I think overall the risk profile probably should have been changed, but I think I think that was a comment that didn't really make sense yeah. when she said it that way. Well, fundamentally, uh, and we're not a political podcast, right? Fundamentally, <laughs> I would say that most mortgage originators would not be in support of this change. Let's no. call it what it is. Sure. Mortgage originators are probably never in favor of a policy that increases interest rates. That's correct. So fundamentally, I would say there's certainly some holes you can poke. Sure. But, but if you're a consumer to, to, to take that and say, well, now it's going to cost me $14,000 more dollars to buy this house. A yep. little bit of, a, of a, a stretch, and you're making a lot of assumptions there that may necessarily not be the case. Um, and then one thing that, that I didn't mention here is if, if you are actively searching for a home and now mm. you're thinking, well, this is going to cost me more, right? No. The lender that you've been working with has been quoting you these interest rates since March. There you go. So if the rate was six and a half, it's still six and a half. So it, it hasn't changed in the confines of, of what you are expecting. Yeah, so let me let me kind of throw this one to you. If you're Sandra Thompson right now, what product would you pull out of the FHFA wall of Hall of Fame and put on the table here that could be used that would be more impactful to both borrowers than maybe what she did right here? Do you have one? Uh, I'll let you take it. I can't think of... You don't think of one at all? I don't know where Nothing, you're running like, with this. Use, use, use your, your imagination. What product could she pull out? Yeah, I don't know. You don't know. So for me, I think what I would like to see her do is is two different products. I'd like to see her do potentially a forty year mortgage if if you meet certain criteria, just okay. like you did. True right. forty year am. Yeah, there'll be a bump to the rate. Maybe it's a quarter bump, but it gives that it, it loosens up the affordability metrics and and helps people get into a home that continues to rise and offsets the higher interest. Right. I would like to see her do that with caveats, of course, right? We don't want a 55, 60 DTI on a 40-year AM, right? We don't want that. Um, I also would like to see her bring back maybe like a graduated payment style mortgage. Maybe it's an introduction, like maybe it's a small introduction with a step up to get to the mortgage where it needs to be. Don't bring back IO. That's not what I'm saying, but I'm saying bring back that step up graduated payment scale to maybe where it's lower the first year, the second year, third year flat. Some might say, well, Quinn, that's a three, two, one. Yeah, that's because you're lowering the rate. I'm saying keep the rate the same and lower the payment and defer the interest off on the backside. I mean, I guess those are kind of one and two of the same, but there's no interest rate, you know, hit for that. Well, there's no large upfront cost correct. to it that's to a, yeah, a third no, party. Right, where you're paying so. the buy down, correct. So I'd like to see those. I think that would help. Um, unfortunately, we live in a politically charged world right now and this threw fuel on it um, it really took it from a bonfire to a forest fire overnight well it created a lot of uh, a lot of animosity certainly and, and i think that the fhfa can do whatever they want in the confines of these loan level pricing adjustments mm -hmm. to try to support affordable housing the affordable housing problem is not a quarter percent of interest rate half no. percent of interest rate the affordable housing problem is that there is no affordable housing to buy so, so until they get to the root of the problem, which is how do we incentivize builders and make it cost effective for builders to build affordable housing starter homes for yes. people purchasing uh, or just affordable housing in general on a multifamily level, until they can figure that part out, the rest of this stuff doesn't matter. And it's just 
you just something to talk about. Yeah. No, I think you did a great job describing that. I probably even did better than, than I did on the previous episode there. So, um, but guys, you know, think about this. You've got two major things we talked about that are with your Congress, uh, Congress person right now, reach out to them, tell them about what you want to see them vote on, what you don't want to see them vote on. Like now more than ever, some of these bills are very effective to everyone listening to this and those that aren't even listening to it. So reach out, tell them what your, your interest is right now, both these, uh, proposed bills to Congress to kind of move their way into the Senate. Very Without important. a doubt. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, Daniel, always thanks for having you on the show today, man. You're a great guest. You always do a great job on this, uh, lending update, put a lot of time and effort into it. Greatly appreciate it. Tell the audience how they can find out more about the Halverson team and what's going on over there at Bank of England. Yeah, you can find us at Bank of England at boejax.com. Give us a call at 904-992-1000. Find us on social media. Uh, you can submit a contact form to, to complain about LLPAs. We'll be happy to listen to you. <laughs> Uh, but I uh, would love to hear from you and appreciate your time, man. Yeah, and if you're not in the Jacksonville market, you can reach out to your local Bank of England at boemortgage.com. That's boemortgage.com. You can find any office location. They're all around the country. Um, lender, definitely a wonderful lender. Lots of options around there. If you like this podcast, you like what you're hearing, please five-star review it. Leave us a comment. We love hearing from you guys. Uh, that helps us kind of fuel our fire to the next episode. We're looking forward uh, to doing for you guys. And then also, if you would, check us out on our socials at What's Your One More with the number one. That's What's Your One More with the number one on all major platforms. Daniel, thanks again for being on the show today. You got it, ma'am. I got one more shot, I'm gonna make it. One more chance, I'm gonna take it. I meant it when I said it, now it's time for me to do it. I got one life to live, so I put all into it, yeah.